Well, this is the last Sunday in the month of May, which the month of May, as we've mentioned over the course of the last few weeks, is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we've been focusing on topics of mental health throughout the month. And so one more today. We've also been looking at the Psalms in light of mental health. Um, Because the Psalms often present to us a very real response, you know, kind of a heartfelt response to the troubles that, that really we all experience in life. And while the circumstances and the context of, you know, things that took place 3,000 years ago, other side of the world and ancient Israel are different than the context situations that we may have today, the, the emotions, the expressions, how we grapple with life's troubles look very similar. And so the, the Psalms provide us with, uh, with a very um, profound insight into this. Humans throughout history, you know, there's really no exception, humans throughout all of history have endured difficulties in life. We've all struggled. And so we turn to the pages of Scripture for understanding and for strength and for grace. But before we open up to our passage today, which is going to be Psalm 77, let us pray. Eternal God, you are our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. The weight of life's struggles affect us, and they can affect us deeply. They affect us physically, mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually. So we ask that your presence would comfort us and strengthen us. And may your words not only speak to us, but abide within us as we give you glory and honor and praise. Amen. So as I mentioned, our text today is Psalm 77. And it, like Psalm 42 that we looked at a few weeks ago, it gives us a little inscription above the actual the words of the psalm. And we talked about how in Psalm 42, it was attributed to the sons of Korah as, as the authors of that psalm. Well, Psalm 77, it's not the sons of Korah, but it does give us a bit of context. It says, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. You know, often these little headings, these little subheadings, when we see them in our Bibles, you know, we often skip over them, probably because, I mean, I guess they're not all that critical to the message of the psalm itself. But I like to at least note them, and if we can learn anything about them, present those to you. So King David is often you know, regarded as the person who wrote at least most of the Psalms that uh, have the author attributed to them. But we also know that King David organized groups such as the Sons of Korah and other priests and musicians included. And so um, we see this in 1 Chronicles 25.1. says, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service, the sons of Asaph and, the, and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. So here we see both of those names mentioned. Both Jeduthun and Asaph were appointed by David to oversee music in the temple. And later, under David's son Solomon, when the, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the, the newly built temple, it mentions how Asaph and Jeduthun, again, were, were present. And I wanted to read a portion of this scene just so maybe you can get a, kind of a mental picture of what 
they were doing, what it maybe looked like that they were doing. And I don't have this on the screens for you, so just use your imagination here. So this is from Second Chronicles chapter 5. And it says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put in there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people Israel. When they came out of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise for the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They were tasked with providing praise, with leading others in the worship of God. And so that's a little bit of the authorship behind this psalm. So let's look at the psalm itself now. Again, Psalm 77. And we're going to look at it in two big parts. The first part being verses 1 through 9, and the second part being verses 10 through 20. And we're going to start with, obviously, the first part, verses 1 through 9, but I'm going to split them up just to make it a little more digestible. And it begins as a lament. We use that word kind of a lot in church, or at least recently. And I just wanted to pull up, you know, what, what is, back up a little bit and say, what is the definition of a lament? And two definitions I want to note. One is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And the second, kind of similar, a song or poem expressing sorrow. So we look at these first nine verses, and so we're going to see this passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And I'm going to start with reading just the four verses, first four verses, pause and discuss a bit, and then we'll read verses five through nine, pause and discuss, and then go into part two. So verses one through four, it begins, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Whenever you see that word, that word Selah sometimes appears in the Psalms, it's likely a, a technical musical term or instruction. We don't know exactly what it meant. Maybe it just meant to kind of pause there. But uh, you'll see it a couple times in Psalm 77. Just side note. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Just hearing those words, you know, they don't really describe a happy place to be in, right? And as we have seen over the past few weeks, many of the Psalms are just honest and raw expressions of how we feel in life sometimes. In Psalm 77, it doesn't give us any specific clues or context into what's going on, what's happening. But yet, three, you know, 3,000 years ago, other side of the globe, we see this human expression of emotion. And even in our modern world, we can understand, 
we can identify with those same expressions, those same types of feelings and emotions. When we look at these first four verses and, and moving on as well, you know, we can say kind of obviously that the person is a person of, of faith. They're crying out to God. I cry aloud to God. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. I think, you know, it's important for us to realize, I think that we, sometimes we put a, a pressure on ourselves or maybe the world puts a pressure or we think the world puts a pressure on ourselves where we, we think or maybe we assume that to have faith is to always be, you know, happy, to have happy feelings or that we always have to present our best before God. Where we go to God in prayer thinking, you know, we've got everything in control and we're just kind of talking to God and say, okay, great, you know. But really, an expression of faith is one of honesty, it's one of vulnerability, and it's one of, of reverence. We might be a little surprised when we see the words like in verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It's as if the psalmist himself has nothing left. He's got no strength left to give. He has no strength before God. And verse 4 continues this idea. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You hold my eyelids open. Have you ever been so distraught that it just exhausts your entire body? And it's like your, your body just wants to go into, into sleep mode. It's like it, it knows that you need a mental and emotional break. And your only kind of escape from that is just to get some sleep. We know what it's like to be so troubled that we don't have the words to say. You know, whether it's something that you yourself are experiencing or it's something that we're looking at from the outside in, like, like the events of 9-11 left many of us speechless. The events of this past week in Uvalde left many of us speechless. We can identify with those words, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Verses 1 through 4 here, they put us in the scene of someone who is experiencing this deep and all-consuming grief. It has a physical effect on them, an emotional effect and a spiritual effect. And while we, we may not be presently in that sort of situation, maybe in our own lives, we've likely been there. Or if you haven't been there, that probably just means you're, you're really young. <laughs> because there will come a time when you will feel that for yourself and you will know what those words mean in a personal way. What we see in the Psalms is that being faithful, living out our faith involves honesty, it involves sincerity, and it involves reverence before God. So still in part one of the whole psalm, let's move over uh, down into verses five through nine. He continues, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. The psalmist's grief has led him to some big questions. That often happens to us when we're experiencing these tough times. We, we go to the questions. And his questions are, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This questioning, it's a natural result of, of grief. And we don't understand why something happened. We don't understand maybe what the future holds because of what has happened. We often find ourselves in a, in a place of doubt in our present circumstance. And in our grief, we may wonder, God, where are you? God, where is your goodness? Has your goodness stopped? Have you abandoned me? Are you punishing me? These questions are, are similar to those questions posed by the psalmist. So what does the psalmist do? Well, if you kind of go back to, I kind of flipped how I went through this. Go back up to verses 5 and 6. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So while the psalmist is struggling in the present, and he doesn't know what the future holds, what does he do? He turns to the past. He turns to his memories He goes back to the things that he knows about God in his heart. So that leads us into part two. We're going to pick up with verse 10. So part one being the lament. Part two now being a faithful reflection and a response. Verse 10 begins, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. In these times of uncertainty, the psalmist turns back to what he knows to be true. He turns back to his memory. He turns back to what he knows about God. He turns back to the foundation on which he had built his life. That foundation being God. And by doing this, we'll see that the psalmist finds some clarity, he finds some comfort, he finds some hope. He continues, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Remember, he was just lamenting, but now he's saying, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, what he does there is he recalls another time when the people faced uncertainty and fear and even great emotional turmoil when they were leaving Egypt. He 
he refers back to Moses and Aaron and how God delivered them then and there. And so for the psalmist, he goes all the way back. He remembers the terror of the Egyptians and what they were going through and how God delivered them. And also he mentions in verse 19 about the sea. So the sea or the waters often in the Old Testament were viewed as a, a, a chaotic, um, troubling force. We see it in Genesis 1 when the Spirit of God was over the waters. They were kind of this troubling, chaotic force and God put order to them. And the psalmist says in verse 19, which is my personal favorite verse in this, this whole chapter, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Sometimes our path is going to be through the sea. We would much rather go around, most likely, stay on dry, dry ground. Or wait for a ferry, or wait, you know, and cross on a nice bridge, right? But sometimes we find ourselves traveling through the sea, or being led through the, fee, the sea, and it's scary. It may feel like chaos is all around us, and we may feel like that we're about to be swallowed up at any moment. And again, he's, he's, he's hearkening back to the time when, when God led the Israelites through the Red Sea that had been parted. Those waters, you know, as they were going through... They were going through in faith, but surely it was still a little scary. God led them through the seas, through the chaos. We should do what the psalmist did and remember. We should lean on our faith and what we know to be true. Truth like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. From Psalm 23. Or remember the truth of the cross, that there is no depth that we can enter into, no valley too deep where Christ is not there with us. Or remember the truth that no matter what we face, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. I love that last line. Your footprints were unseen. Sometimes it may not feel like God is with us. You know, we can't see the footprints, right? When we are in a difficult time and it feels like God isn't with us and we can't see his footprints, we should know, though, that God is always with us. He leads us like a shepherd leads a flock. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. For us, some of the most difficult things we experience in life is that of loss. And loss can present itself in, in a number of different ways. It could be the loss of a, a job, loss of financial security. It could be loss of health, loss of, a, of home or possessions, loss of a dream or expectations, hopes that we had for our own lives or for our future. It could be loss of a friendship or a relationship or even a marriage. But probably the most difficult of all for us is the loss of a loved one. Grief, the grief that we experience because of loss is a very human experience. We're not immune to it one bit. And grief is complicated. Everyone goes through it 
in their own way. And sometimes, you know, there's broader patterns to it. You may have heard of the the five stages of grief developed by a psychiatrist in the late 1960s, but that's not a perfect formula. It's more complex than that. And even as Christians, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not exempt from grieving. Just because we believe that God is with us, that Jesus lived and died for us, doesn't mean that we don't also grieve. Doesn't mean that Christ didn't also grieve. When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. But in our grief, we hold on to faith. And we can hold on to the memory of what we know about God's abiding presence with us. Even as Psalm 77 describes, even when we don't see God's footprints. God is there with us, leading us, guiding us like a shepherd. And we can draw comfort from God and from one another. Memory is a, it's a powerful thing. As I've, I've encouraged us the last few weeks... I think it's so important to commit scripture to memory. Scriptures like Psalm 23, when they abide in us and become a part of us, when we experience those times, we can remember the goodness of God. Memory is also important as we hold on to loved ones that we may have lost. The pain that we experience when someone close to us passes, that amount of pain that we feel reflects the blessing of the love that we have for them and that they had for us. Often the more we love that person, the more we grieve, the harder it is. We know that our lives are better because they were a part of it. And they're forever a part of our story. We don't get over the loss of a loved one. We don't get past the loss of a loved one. They are forever incorporated into our story. Much like life being like a, like a tapestry. Each fiber represents a person, an event, a memory, both the joys and the sorrows. But it all comes together as a tapestry. It's a beautiful and sacred thing. There's a tradition in the Jewish faith of leaving small stones on graves of loved ones as an act of remembrance for that person. Here's uh, one picture and uh, included another one as well. But why they leave stones? Um, well, one thing is stones don't wither like flowers do. They endure. So the idea is that that memory of them doesn't fade, doesn't wither. That their life doesn't fade, doesn't wither. Their presence with us doesn't fade, doesn't wither. This tradition, it has its uh, origins back in the medieval times, and it might go back further, but there's other examples in the Old Testament about stones being used as acts of remembrance. Back in Genesis 28, Jacob had a, had a dream of a stairway that reached up to the heavens, and angels were uh, ascending and descending upon it, and at the top of the stairway was the Lord. And the Lord made a promise to Jacob that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through him. It's an extension of the promise that God made to Abraham. And when Jacob awoke from that, 
he took the, the stone that he was using basically as a pillow, and he, he made it into um, a pillar. Uh, he anointed it with oil. He made it into a monument, and he called that place Bethel. In Joshua 4, after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, it said that the Lord uh, commanded Joshua to send 12 men back into the riverbed to gather a rock and to place it up as a memorial to serve as a reminder of God's deliverance and goodness toward the people. And lastly, this one might sound familiar, even though you may not know where, it, where it's from, but uh, this example is from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And God saved the Israelites from the Philistines. And so Samuel took a stone and he set it up as a monument to remember what God had done for them. And it says that he called the stone Ebenezer. So that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. That word Ebenezer means stone of help. In all these instances, these stones or these monuments are reminders of God's deliverance for his people, of God's presence with us, of God's goodness for us. And so we too should remember. And that's really what this weekend is about. It's a call to remember. Specifically, it's a call to remember those who have served and sacrificed for our freedom, whether they died in battle or they served and have since passed on. And we as Americans, I mean, it's more than just a, a barbecue, right? As Americans, as families, as individuals, we pause this weekend to give God thanks for their lives, for their service, and for their sacrifice. And um, I wanted to, at, at this point, show a short video to pay tribute for those soldiers. When I look back through history and consider all the sacrifices in every war, and I try to grasp it all, come to grips with it, stand in reverence of all those willing to give their lives for something bigger than themselves, I am stunned by the sheer numbers. All those lives, all those families serving their country. I can't always comprehend it. My heart is not big enough to take it all in. That each one didn't come home. What they lost for their service. What we gained for their courage. Today, I stop to remember. Every single number is one soldier, one sailor who got up in the morning and put on a uniform, one Marine who answered the call to fight for freedom, one airman who knew the cost and went anyway, one man or woman who paid the ultimate price for many, and the freedom I live in now. Today, I remember. So I hope you had an opportunity to, to select a stone as you entered into the sanctuary. 
And the idea is that these stones, like the, the Jewish tradition, would be stones of remembrance. In just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to, to come forward. Beverly's going to play a little music for us, and we'll just offer a, a couple minutes. And I'd invite you to let this stone represent someone that you know, someone that's maybe served in our military, or maybe it's just someone that you would like to remember, any loved one, um, or even just given the tragic events of this last week, if you'd like this stone to represent the children and the teachers that um, lost their lives in Uvalde, you may do that as well. So we'll offer a few minutes now, and come forward just as you're ready, and you may place the stone on the table on, at, on the, at the front, and thank God for the life that that stone represents. We'll do that now. join in prayer.